to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Wednesday, March 1st. The theme of today's episode, some players are starting to play very well on both the WTA and ATP tours on today's show. I want to highlight those players as well as offer my thoughts on all five of the tour-level events we have on the calendar this week. The headline event of them all, no doubt, is the ATP 500 happening in Dubai. We've already reached the quarterfinal stage of things there. And why is that event? the headline event of the week because it features a world number one as Novak Djokovic earns another victory to remain undefeated, reach the quarterfinals in Dubai. This time for Djokovic was a straight set win over Talon Griegsborn. While, of course, I want to discuss how he improved between matches one and two, he is not going to be the focus of my coverage in Dubai. No, there are a couple of players playing particularly well that I think we have to dial in on this week. Now, we've talked about them a lot over the course of the past month, and that's because they've done a bunch of winning. Of course, I'm referring to two guys who entered this week on win streaks in both Daniil Medvedev and Hoopy Hercots. You look for Medvedev. He's looking for the three-peat, the trifecta, winning three events in three consecutive weeks. Of course, Medvedev wins last week in the Middle East, wins the week prior on the indoor hard courts of Rotterdam for Hoopy Hercots. He's coming off of a week where he won the title on the indoor hard courts in Marseille. He gets two solid victories over Shevchenko Kotov to reach the quarterfinals. And while that's not the toughest draw, I do want to highlight the consistency we've seen from Hercots over the course of the past 15 months. Talk about why I'm particularly excited for his matchup against Djokovic on Thursday, I believe, both in, yeah, it's Thursday in Dubai, Thursday night in Dubai, Thursday day or morning here in the United States. But anyways, a lot of meat on the bone as it relates to Dubai. You have Djokovic, Hercots, Medvedev, a couple guys coming off of injuries. If you look at the 30,000-foot view in Chorich, Zverev, they're both still alive. Rublev's fighting off match points left and right. Yeah, we got some things to discuss as it relates to that 500-level event in Dubai. But, of course, I have my eye on the two WTA events this week as well, the 250 in Monterey, as well as the inaugural 250 in Austin. Lots of young Americans having success so far in Austin, whether it be Katie McNally last night over Ashlyn Kruger, that was a ball-bashing clinic that I certainly enjoyed watching, want to spend some time talking about today. Maybe some of you are listening to this later on Wednesday. I'm recording 4.24 p.m. Eastern time. The reason I bring that up is Katie Valinets from, I believe, 5-1 or 5-love down in the third comes back to earn a three-set victory over Anastasia Potapova. Valinets earning or reaching, I should say, the first quarterfinal at the WTA tour level of her career this week in Austin. I want to talk about what I think makes Valinets such an interesting, uh, interesting, what's the word I'm looking for here? Just uh, an interesting, uh, dich- dichotomy is the wrong word, but she just plays differently. That's the word. I'm, I'm blanking on the word right now. I apologize. I'm still recovering from all our time on the road in the month of February, but she just, it, again, it's an outlier. It's a different sort of style than you typically see right now on the WTA tour. And here's the word. It's a fun 
contrast to the ball bashing that has dominated 2023. So I want to talk about her performance. I want to talk about Caroline Garcia looking very good in Monterey as she continues to rack up points, try to establish and consolidate her place within not just the top 10, but honestly, the WTA top five. Plenty of WTA things to touch on. And then, of course, how about in, in the theme of American tennis, the American women in an advantageous position in Austin, the American men are looking to dominate that ATP 500 draw in Acapulco. I believe you look at the top half of the draw as we approach the round of 16, I think six of the eight men remaining are Americans. And yeah, that means we're poised for a good week and a week where Taylor Fritz becomes the first guy to crack the ATP top five since Andy Roddick. He is obviously the highlight, but you know, again, it's, it, is representative of the broader push we're seeing across American men's tennis. We talk about the depth in that uh, of that group all the time here on this show, and it's manifesting itself in Acapulco. Of course, we've also got some clay court action uh, to round out the year in Santiago, Chile as well. And so five tour-level events, thoughts on all of them here on today's show. Of course, the reason I'm able to do that day in, day out is because of the support we get from all of you listeners and just to bring to all of your listeners' attention in case you didn't know, we've got some really cool things in store for all of you tennis fans over the next few months. Obviously, uh, we'll keep rocking and rolling here on our podcast, whether it be this show, the Great Shot Podcast, where we recap the Division One men's and women's college tennis world each and every week. Damian Kuz and Jakob Babro talk about all of the challengers. David Kane's going to be joining me to look at some big picture ATP WTA Tour level things uh, this week as well. So make sure you check out that Great Shot Podcast feed. Make sure you check out the Cracked Interviews podcast feed. I recently spoke with Arizona Tennis Classic founder Johnny Levine. That challenger event happens the second week of Indian Wells. It features an exclusively top 100 field, and we're going to be on the grounds for that event this year. I'm going to be emceeing it. We're going to have pregame, postgame shows. Really excited to get down there. If you want to hear more about that challenger, how it all comes together, be sure to go listen to that interview, as well as the countless other players and coaches we've spoken with over on the Cracked Interviews podcast feed. We've got the break. Point show where we interviewed Taylor Fritz about his participation in the Netflix docuseries. We interviewed Billion showrunner, director of the one of my favorite movies, Rounders, Brian Koppelman, about the show as well. We're cranking here at Crack Rackets articles as well from our new cast of interns. So be sure to go check out CrackRackets.com. And then, by the way, we've got college tennis broadcasts coming up. We're going to be highlighting the 2023 college season as we never have before, as we're going to have broadcasts for the SEC, the ACC, the Big Ten, each and every weekend through the remainder of the year. You can find all of those broadcasts on ESPN Plus as well as on our Cracked Rackets YouTube channel for more information. Check out our social media. And then, Last but certainly not least, shout out because I know you want to hear about pro tennis, but shout out to our dear friends at Tennis Point as well. You and all the dear, you all know the deal is how you say that in English. Tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15 with all all of that in mind, let's talk about the five tour level events we have on the calendar this week. Let's start with that headline event, the ATP 500 happening in Dubai. Novak Djokovic, a 2-3 and three win over Talon Greek Sport. I mean, the numbers for Djokovic are just laughable now, undefeated here. In the 2023 season, he moves on to just a ho-hummer of a 14-0 start and this 14-match win streak. It's amazing that 
it's not even going to be mentioned in the first 35 things. The first 50 things Novak Djokovic has accomplished in his career. Just a ho-hummer of a 14-match win streak to start his age 35-36 season. You look for him, a 2-3 and three win. He was broken once, but won 91% of his first serve point, 66.7, so two-thirds. I don't know why I said 66.7. Two-thirds of his second serve points as well. And, you know, you look for Djokovic here to start the season. He's holding 92.9% of the time. That's better than Prime Isner. That's Kyrgios last season-esque. Again, that's elite of the elite, best of the best. That ranks number one if you look for it over the scale of the last 52 weeks. And for what it's worth, over the last 52 weeks, the average top 50 player holding serve 82.1% of the time. So yeah, 10% better on serve. Of course, he's also breaking serve 31.6% of the time, 31.8, excuse me, to start the season. That would rank number one. It's actually below his career average, which is freaking crazy. Novak Djokovic's career break percentage, 32.1%, and yet this ho-hummer of a 31.8, which by the way is 3.3% better than he was at last season. Uh, Yeah, it would rank number one on the ATP Tour right now if extended over the course of 52 weeks. And look, Djokovic is 54-6 and over his last 52 weeks. He's won 90% of his matches in his last 52 weeks of play. Of course, that stretch has also included two slam titles and what he's played, a grand total. How many events has Novak Djokovic played during this stretch of time? Let's see. He's played a grand total of 12 different events. He's made the quarterfinals in 10 of them. He's made the semifinals in 10 of them. Uh, He's made the finals in nine of them. It's ridiculous. I don't know what else to say. Like, and this is not one of the more memorable stretches of Novak Djokovic's career. That's just remarkable. Absolutely remarkable. And I mean, look, physically, he moved better against Greeks poor. The approach shots were far more precise as indicated in his success on serve and the depths of his return was laughable. We all saw the stretch backhand flick that ends up dropping in just over the head of Greek Spoor. He's the best player in the world. I think that's the most I can say about Novak Djokovic. And he's still not playing his best. And yet, how he's playing right now, this is the new term clearly I've become obsessed with. He's just one shot better than you. Whatever he needs to do, he'll be able to do it. Uh, that's my assessment of Novak Djokovic right now. Not exactly novel, and that's why I want to spend some time on some other players who I do think we can break down. Let's start with Hubi Hercots because we spent plenty of time on Daniil Medvedev, and I think I'm going to spend plenty of time on him as well as Hubi with David Kane on the Great Shot Podcast tomorrow. But, I mean, you look for Hubi Hercots now— You look for him since the start of the 2022 season, even before 2021, where, by the way, he went 36 and 23, made a semifinal of Wimbledon, made a final of Miami. But let's just go since the start of last year to make things a little bit more simple. Over the last now 14 months, Hubi Hurkacz, 53 and 25 overall. That's the two-thirds rule where he is winning 68% of his matches. And, you know, he's played 25 total first-round matches. He's reached the quarterfinals of 12 different events. If you're reaching the quarterfinals at half of the events you play, four of them for Hubi coming at the Masters 1000s. He's also won multiple titles now. He won the title in Marseille. He won uh, the title, where was his other title? In Hollow last year. He made the final in Canada. That's top 15 tennis. That's the definition of tier two, is you are just putting yourself in championship weekend of every event that you play. And I realize since the start of last year, you look for Hubie Hercots at the majors. Eight and five overall, only two second weeks. He did them at the French Open, at the Australian Open. 
not at Wimbledon, where you'd think he'd be at his best. Lost first round last year to Davidovich Fokina in five sets. I know only two second weeks, no quarterfinals at the slams. That's a disappointing, you know, five slam run for Hubi Hercots. No doubt about that. He's been so good, though, everywhere else. I mean, again, 12 quarterfinals then in the 20 non-slam events he's played since the start of last season. Plays a lot of tennis, but he shows up in Hubi Hercots right now. First over the last 52 weeks amongst top 50 players in how many aces he's hit. Hoopy's hit 922 aces. Next closest is Isner at 834, of course, by ace percentage. You know, again, because Hoopy has played more matches, of course, he's going to have more aces than a guy like Isner. But by ace percentage, Hoopy is fourth overall. You look for him by hold percentage, how frequently he's holding serve. He's fourth overall. He is an elite server. Elite of the elite, and that match is going to, or that server is going to keep him competitive in every match that he plays. He's also the best volleyer on, in the top 100. Serves and volleys comfortably, uses his length, his first step, his fluidity so well to beat you to the spot by moving forward when he changes direction on you. Of course, the biggest issue for Hoopy, we all know it, it's the forehand. He misses a lot of forehand returns, and you look for him in terms of break percentage. Hoopy Hurricanes right now uh, currently ranks 45th amongst top 50 players in break percentage. He's breaking the serve 16.4% of the time. That's 6.5% below the top 50 average. That's unacceptable, and the reason is in a big moment, people are going to go after his serve with his eastern grip. That ball will sail on him when he tries to overcompensate. He misses it into the net. That forehand approach, when he tries to go inside out in it, he'll hit the net tape four times in a row, then he'll hit it wide, you know, then he'll hit it long, excuse me, twice in a row, and then he'll hit four spectacular winners in a row when he finds his rhythm all of a sudden and moves forward with his length. But, you know, again, I mentioned that length. He's so fluid as an athlete. And again, Pavel Kotov, who doesn't have the biggest weapons, who who he beats today to advance to the quarterfinals, five and one, Kotov couldn't get a ball by him. And I do think that underlying athleticism, that underlying fluidity, that's what makes Hercot so intriguing is he has an elite weapon. There's no doubt about it. His serve, his aggression moving forward, he has the ability to play on his terms, to hold serve, to keep pace with just about any player on tour. Um, you know, again, he also has the athleticism, the length to put balls in play and make you earn it. You got to hit the definitive approach shot to beat him because, again, he's going to continue to extend rallies. The issue is he does have weakness in that forehand, and it does feel like it's improved. Oh, it does feel improvable because, again, I do think foundationally, yes, he catches that ball a little bit late. Yes, the grip is a little bit open. He hits that shot a little bit flatter, so it is more susceptible to sailing. But I don't think it's a foundation. It's not like a structural huge issue for him. It it feels continued to be something he can improve upon, and he can do everything else. And so, again— I think he's elevated himself into tier two status where you know, and maybe not at the slams, but at every other event, you're going to have to get to Hubi to get to the championship weekend, to get to the semifinals, the finals. And look, he's 0-4 in his career against Djokovic, but he's played him pretty close. You know, he first time they played the French Open, Djokovic gets him in straights, whatever. They then play at Wimbledon, the very next slam. Four-set win for Djokovic, a little bit tighter. They play in Paris, semifinals 2021, 7-6 in the third. That's what it takes for Djokovic to beat Hercots. And then 3-4 and four when they played on the clay in Madrid last season. Again, clay not the most advantageous surface. I do think Hubi has the weapons. He has the aggression and the willingness to go down swinging to beat Novak, not beat Novak, but to hang with Novak. And then, you know, again, 
I think he has the athleticism to sustain himself physically in a best of three set match. I think Hoopy is very capable, more than capable of going three hours with anyone. You know, again, you look for Hoopy Hercott since the start of last season against top 20 players. He's seven and 10 overall. That seven wins against top 20 opponents, you know, that's a top 10 number amongst top 50 players on the ATP tour. And he does have wind over guys like Medvedev a couple of times. He's beaten Sinner. He's beaten Rude. He's beaten Felix. Obviously, Novak's a different level, and he's 0-4 against Novak in his career, but I want to see this match go three sets. I want to see Hubie really give Novak a push here today, uh, or excuse me, in their quarterfinal battle. And again, I think he has the serve, the weapons to at least push Novak back. Now again, Novak's going to know when to pick on that forehand, when to hit behind him, when to hit the slice out wide on the deuce, but... Novak sometimes likes to play with his food, and I do think Hoopy's a really good improviser, so I could see this match being a tight three-set match. Novak a 76% favorite, according to Tennis Abstract. I think Novak wins. I think this match goes three. I think it's going to be a fun one in Dubai. Hoopy Hercots is playing well. Again, he's a tier two guy now for me. I think he's right up there with a Rublev, with a Berrettini. I know he hasn't done it as consistently as those guys at the slams, but he has done it as consistently as those guys everywhere else. He obviously is a 1,000-level champion with his title in Miami. I'm buying stock still on Hubie Hercots, which is crazy to say because Hubie Hercots is now 26 years old, and you feel like he is a veteran, and yet you feel like maybe now he's in the smack dab of his prime, and I think that prime is a top 10 player. Hercots right now sitting at number 11 in the live rankings. He beats Novak tomorrow. He'll jump up to number 10. He wins the title this week. He'll jump all the way up to number six. Yeah, that's tier two, folks. In that five to 12 range, that's a tier two player. That's what Hoopy Hercots has been now for two and a half years consecutively. And it just feels like we don't respect. I don't, again, because of the slam success. It's why he he's fumbled too many times early in slams, the lack of slam success. That's why he's not considered a two tier two guy, he should be, because he's been more consistent than just about anyone else everywhere else. And so shout out to Hoopy Hercots, who I think is playing some really good tennis in Dubai. I'm excited for that one. Excuse me for the sniffles. Um, but with that said, uh, again, looking at the other quarterfinals in Dubai, how about this? Do you know Borna Chorch is 5-2 and two in his career head-to-head against Daniil Medvedev? Now, they haven't played since 2019 prior to Chorch's stretch of injuries. And, you know, again, it is fascinating that Chorch has beaten him U.S. Open, Paris Masters, Cincy Masters, next-gen finals as well. Medvedev with wins in a St. Petersburg final, Wimbledon first round. Uh, two, two and four is the career had had two and five if you include the withdrawal from Medvedev in one match. Um, yeah, look, Borna George had was pushed three sets in his round of 16 match, uh, uh, ultimately a 7-5 in the third win over Kokonakis, who just his service forehand are non-negotiable weapons, and he's firing on them, uh, both cylinders with them well. He was moving well, did well enough changing direction with his backhand to not let Chorich pick on it, moves well enough to the open court when he's able to predict that, even though he's not the best at changing directions. I do think, you know, again, looking for Chorich, that was a really good win. He, I thought he hit the backhand decisively in sets two and three. He was much more willing to be the first one to go down the line to challenge the Kokonakis movement. Um, 
you know, again, quietly, you look for Borna George. Obviously, he has those Cincinnati title points that are buffering him right now in the rankings. He's currently sitting at 20 coming into the week with his run this week. He's currently up to 18 in the live rankings. Borna Chorich, uh, over his last 52 weeks now, 34 and 20 overall. He's made, though, quarterfinals now uh, at six different tour-level events, all of them coming since the middle of July yeah, dare you say, Chorch is clearly a top 50 player. Once again, I think he's returning serve uh, at, a, at a pretty solid rate. Or, excuse me, I think he's, uh, well, no, I think he's putting returns in play, but maybe more assertive. He's more aggressive with his first strike. He's more aggressive with his first forehand. He's holding serve 83.4% of the time. That's particularly impressive. 84.3 when you get onto the hard courts. Again, that's top 25 level stuff from Borna Chorch, who is a top 25 server right now, even if the break percentage is lagging a little bit behind. Look, he'll get the chance to do some dictating given the defensive court position. Daniil Medvedev will take on the return of serve, but man, Medvedev is just in brick wall mode. And obviously you look forward to Neil Medvedev now between Rotterdam, Do- uh, Rotterdam, Doha, and Dubai. He's now won 11 consecutive matches. A straight set win for him over Bublik gets him to the quarterfinals here in Dubai. He didn't face a break point in his match against Bublik, won 97% of his first serve points. I mean, again, he got through in an hour, four minutes, which is exactly what the doctor ordered, given how much tennis he's put on his body over the course of the last three months. But again, he needed it. He needed the buffer and confidence. He's reasserted himself in the top 10 up to number seven, although he gets out another one, gets to the semifinals. He'll, uh, depending on how Rublev does, he has a chance to leap over Rublev with a win uh, and a Rublev loss back up to number six. He wins a title this week. He's all the way back up potentially to number five in the world which is where Daniil Medvedev freaking belongs. I think he's the second best player in the world right now, as I said yesterday with Nate Walrath. So I'm not going to reiterate that point here. But again, it's a fascinating top half of the draw. And then on the bottom half, Andre Rublev down, you know, gets blitzed in the first set. He was down 4-0 in a blink of the eye. And Boy, was Davidovich Hokina moving well, absorbing, redirecting pace well. Davidovich Hokina looked like the best version of himself in a 6-1 first set victory over Rublev. But credit to Rublev, down down 6-1 in the second set breaker, uh, grinds his way back, puts a couple of first serves in play, does well to get just depth on his return of serve, gifted a couple of Davidovich unforced errors, no doubt, but seven straight points for Rublev, then takes a 7-6 third set as well, multiple matches, he's now come back from set points, match points down, excuse me, here this season, he needs it. I mean, you look for Andre Rublev into the quarterfinals now. Rublev over his last 52 weeks, 44 and 23. He's won two-thirds of his matches, but, you know, you look for Rublev now in terms of total quarterfinals reached. It's his 12th quarterfinal. He's 6-5 and five in quarterfinal rounds. Uh, the big number for Rublev of late, 44 and 23 overall. 7-9 and nine against top 20 opponents. Honestly, I don't know why the perception of Rublev is he's struggled— or that he's just hit status quo. Like, again, he is pretty firmly in Tier 2, which is a really good place to be. He's going to be a perennial top 12 sort of guy, you feel like, for the remainder of his career. And yet, is it because it's one-dimensional? Is it because you know exactly what you're getting with Rublev at this point and there's more intrigue about the unknowns of some of the other and many talented players inside the top, uh, inside this, you know, Tier 2, Tier 3 grouping? 
I don't know. I don't know what it is that leaves me wanting a little bit more still from Andre Rublev. I mean, again, he has a really good opportunity here this week. You look at the bottom half of the draw, he's going to face Botik van de who, by the way, Rublev's 0-2 in his career against van de who absorbs pace really well, has a backhand that he loves to redirect down the line, which will make it a little more difficult for Rublev to dictate with his inside-out forehand, which he loves to do. You know, he also likes to play the slice, get the ball out of Rublev's strike zone, which is a very important thing to do. And yet on paper, you feel like that's a match. Rublev, who's 71.5% favorite, according to Tennis Abstract, he's got to win that match. And then, you know, you look right above him, Alex Virov played his best match to date in a 5-4 and four win, probably over O'Connell. He now takes on Sinego, who just outserved in forehand Felix to a 6-4 and four victory. Tough loss. for It's a bad matchup for Felix, which you struggle to say, but... Again, Sinego had weapons to make Felix uncomfortable, and Felix is still struggling with plans B, C, D, extending rallies, especially on these physical outdoor hard courts. But again, looking at that bottom half of the draw, you know, there's a reason Rublev's a 47.8% favorite to advance to the final. He is in the, the finest form, I would say, of all four of these guys. I need to see a final from Andre Rublev this week. You know, again, go beat who you're supposed to beat here. Give yourself a shot at any of the guys, Medvedev, Hercots, Chorich, obviously Djokovic as well in that top half. Give yourself a shot at one of those guys because those are the matches we need to see Rublev win more of. And again, you got to get there first, and he should get there with the way the draw has opened up for him in Dubai. But again, that's your headline result, uh, headline event of the week. Figured I'd open the show with that very fun set of quarterfinals across the board. Again, you've got Djokovic taking on Hercots, Medvedev taking on Chorich, Zverev versus Sinego, and then, of course, Andre Rublev taking on Botik Vendesen, Shkulp. That's the action there heading into the quarterfinal round. Let's head over to the WTA side of things now where we're still approaching round of 16 play. Again, we'll get to the quarterfinals on Friday as is typically the schedule. But uh, again, let's start with the action happening in Austin here this week, that inaugural WTA 250 event that features so many talented young Americans across the board. I think the first uh, player that I want to touch on is Katie Valimets, who does reach her first tour-level quarterfinal with a three-set victory from 5-1 down, 5-7-6-2-7-5 over Anastasia Potapova. It's the second top 50 win of Valimets' career. The first came, of course, in Australia when she comes through qualifying and knocks out Kudermatova in the second round of play as well. Valimets now into the top 80 of the live rankings for the first time in her career with this quarterfinal result. And I've mentioned this before, but it's worth noting Katie Valinette's different coach now, but she grew up same coach and he's got a different coach now, but she grew up in that Joe Gilbert Academy with Jensen Brooksby. And you see it in the way they play, you know, again, the high percentages, the high and loopy down the lines to buy themselves time, that ability to move the ball around the court so well, that ability to absorb redirect pace. And then the ball machine nature. They're willing to go 25, 30, 35 shots per rally. You're not going to hit one of these players off the court unless you have elite power. That's what Volley Nets does. And you look for Katie Volley Nets now, 37 and 24 over her last 52 weeks. And, you know, against top 100 opponents during that time, she's 7 and 8 overall now. Uh, you know, again, 
That's proving you're a top 100 player. That's getting you to the next step. And do I think Valianets needs to develop some weapons? Absolutely. Like, the serve hangs up too much. There's no doubt about that. And the higher the level she plays as Pot, you know, you look in this match against Potapova, I think, overall in terms of breaks of serve in this one, I want to get the official stacks. I think the number was 13, but I might be wrong there. Total breaks of serve in this match. Oh, actually, uh, break points saved. No, total break points converted. Yeah, 14 breaks in this match. Look, she has the ground strokes to hang. Like, she's ready to play those extended rallies. But if you go up against a Sabalenka or, you know, a Rabakina further up the tour, they're just going to they're going to defend their serve better than Potapova does, who still needs to work on her own second serve and, you know, hitting her spots a little bit better. They're going to protect their own serve better, and they're still going to have those opportunities to capitalize on volley net serve. And yet the moment the rally gets started and the moment she has a return of serve to hit cleanly, you know, Katie Valinets is in a neutral position. And again, the shot tolerance, the physicality she brings at just 21 years old, I'm, I'm very much intrigued by, again, the contrast of styles, the physicality. You have to play good tennis because anything less than that, Katie Valinets is just going to linger and beat you. And now, you know, three-set win over Risk to start the event, three-set win over Potapova to get to her first quarterfinal this is a former USTA Girls 18's national champion back in 2019 and just one of the many young Americans we see right now making a push in pro tennis. Of course, you've got Peyton Stearns going to take on Miriam Borklin. Stearns is a 60% favorite. All of a sudden, she's into her first tour-level quarterfinal, and if Stearns does earn a victory, she'll jump all the way up to number 126, a new career high for her. Of course, we'll get to Emma Navarro later, a former, you know, Stearns won the 2022 NCAA Singles Championship. Navarro won the 2021 NCAA Singles Championship. She is into, uh, or she got a big win in Monterey, and she's going to take on Donna Vekic tonight, but you know, again, a couple of NCAA Americans having success. Of course, Danielle Collins survives a three-setter. She is not—I mentioned the theme is players who are starting to play well. She is not playing her best. It was very streaky. She ultimately survives in three sets uh, to advance over Magdalena Freak. Uh, of course, you know, again, it's a very fun draw. Here in Austin, you've got Sloane Stevens still alive, uh, who got a straight set win over Taylor Townsend, much needed win for Sloane Stevens. And by the way, Katie McNally, another victory, four and three over Ashlyn Kruger. Let's just talk about McNally for a second, because I've alluded to this earlier, the serve, the forehand for Katie McNally, they're non-negotiable. I mean, again, when she is playing on her terms with a first serve and able to hit her first forehand from the center of the court, she's moving in behind that ball. And with this run in Austin, with her win, she's up to number 72 in the live rankings. That's a new career high for another 21-year-old American. McNally, 21 years old, that's 72 in the rankings. Volley, that's 21 years old, that's 78 in the rankings. You know, Katie's aggressive on that return of serve. She'd rather miss the return going for her shot than, again, just loop that ball in. And yet when she lands that return, the drive, the depth on that return of serve, I mean, it's why she's a top 15 doubles player in the world consistently already. A great volleyer. Again, I think she moves really well in terms of she has an explosive first step, not the most fluid in and out of corners, but does a pretty good job of anticipating to make up for that fact. She's got some weapons to match Danielle Collins, to push Collins off the back foot. She'll punish any high-looping second serve, which we saw a lot of from Collins in her first-round match. I'm excited for that battle. 
between a couple of Americans. I, th- I think that's going to be a fun one. And again, Volley Nets, McNally, Collins, Stevens, all still alive in this draw. Stearns in, uh, in Brangle, by the way, who's going to take on Marta Kostyuk, uh, all still alive in Austin. But that gets me to the other thing. Marta Kostyuk should win this event. I stand by the take I offered yesterday. Kostyuk in her first round match, a 5-1 and one win over Delma Golfi. She's just the most complete player in the draw. She's the one or the combination of most complete and in the best form, right? Because of what we've seen from Danielle Collins. And I just think Kostyuk's moving so well right now. She's so confident that she is going. She just gives herself time to do all the things she wants to do. She's not overthinking when she is on the run either because she knows when I can, if I can just get myself back to neutral, I'll have the opportunity to attack. I think March Kostyuk's ending the year inside the top 25. I've been extraordinarily impressed by her level. She's up to number 51 in the live rankings right now. One more victory gets her back up to number 50. She wins the title this week. It would be her first title and take her to a new career high of number 38. I think she's winning the title. I stand by my take in Austin. As of right now, the favorite still Danielle Collins, 39.6. Kostyuk's second at 15.1, my eyes say. Kostyuk's playing significantly better than Collins is at the moment. Those are my thoughts on Austin. As for Monterey, again, big win from Emma Navarro. She uh, gets a good win over, uh, excuse me, uh, Jean Jean, another former college tennis player, in her first round victory, four and two. You look for Emma Navarro now. She's also climbing up the rankings. She's currently sitting, uh, is Navarro, let's see, currently sitting at, I don't want to get this incorrect, Emma Navarro, uh, and I apologize. I'm, this is what happens when I try to search while podcasting. 127, career high in the live rankings right now. One more victory. She'll rise to a new career high of number 116 in the live rankings. Another 21-year-old American. Again, McNally's 21. Volinets is 21. Navarro's 21. She's at 127. Peyton Stearns is 121. She's at 135. It's a good group. It's a good group of top 50-esque talents, in my opinion. I don't know if any of them are winning slams, but it just adds to the depth on the women's side when you already have the Cocos and the Anisimovas and you know, all, all the rest of the world already doing battle at the top of the rankings. This is a deep generation of Eclair Luz and Lees. I don't want to leave anyone out. I'm sure I did. But again, there are a lot of talented young Americans right now. Alicia Parks, duh. How could I forget about her? Uh, a lot of talented young Americans right now in the rankings. And I think we're starting to see a broad class um, starting to emerge uh, but yeah, again, in Monterey, I, I'm fairly certain Navarro is the only American still. Nope, Caroline Dalhide's still alive, and they've each got tough matches. Navarro going to take on Donna Vekic. Dalhide going to take on Anna Karolina Schmidlova. You saw a good win from Caroline Garcia, uh, who earned a 3-4 and four victory just in form. Caillou Vaughn moved very well. She did extend rallies, but... She just didn't have the second serve to hit Garcia off the baseline. And when Garcia has the opportunity to turn into the return of serve, she continues to do it at an elite level. So credit to Caroline Garcia through in straight sets. It's fairly steady right now. I mean, other than second-seeded Marie Boshkova, who I alluded to earlier, knocked out by Shmidova in round one. Uh, you also had six-seeded Sinyakova knocked out 7-6 in the third from Rakimova. All the other seeds are still alive. Garcia, Vekic. Julin, Mertens, Cochiaretto, uh, Sharif, uh, they're all still alive in this match. And so, again, 
uh, in this tournament, excuse me. And so things still steady right now. Not too many developments to discuss as it relates to Monterey. Other than, again, you look for Caroline Garcia, who really still doesn't have that many points to defend from last season. Now, all of Garcia's points start as we approach the grass court season. She makes that title run in Bad Hamburg, and then it's, you know, uh, semifinals Lausanne title in Warsaw, title in Cincinnati. But between now and Bad Hamburg, she has one, two, three, four total victories to defend. A second round at Roland Garros, really the only significant points on her resume. She wins one match at Indian Wells. She'll surpass what she did last year. She wins one match at Miami. She'll surpass what she did last year. She wins any matches during the clay court season. She'll surpass what she did last year. Why do I bring that up? Why is she playing this week? She wants to consolidate her spot in the top uh, five. Like the window is open right now. You look for Garcia. She currently has a 504 point uh, lead on Coco Goff. She wins the title this week. She'll get up to number four in the rankings. And that's with very little points to defend going into the Sunshine Swing, where there are 2,000 total points on the line. She comes out of the Sunshine Swing with like a quarterfinal and a round of 16. Now, all of a sudden, she probably has surpassed Jessica Pagula for that number three ranking in the world. She's got a shot at Sabalenka as well. Sabalenka, 1,400 points ahead. Yeah, that's a lot for Garcia to overcome, but world number three is very much in play for Caroline Garcia. In fact, she should probably get there by the start of the French Open. Uh, And so, again, it's all free points to play with. That's why she's doing it. She's making a push. She's got a ton of points to defend at the end of the year as well. So wants to offer herself some protection there. I get it. I respect it. I respect the grind from Caroline Garcia, uh, who, according to Tennis Abstract, is indeed the favorite to win the title in Monterey, 33.3%. Next closest uh, is Vekic, 24.2%. Mertens at 129 That is your WTA update as it relates to Wednesday, March 1st. Now, we still have two other ATP events to go through here before we wrap today's show. We'll move on to the ATP 500 in Acapulco. Sticking with the theme, there are six Americans still alive in the final eight positions in the top half of the draw. You've got McDonald versus Nakashima. That's a round of 16 matchup. Michael Moe versus Tommy Paul, two Americans who have done battle at the challenger level. Moe, four and one. Oh, let's just go through. McDonald, two and one in the career head-to-head against Nakashima. McDonald beat him at the Australian Open this year, 6-4 in the third. That was a match that was 7-6-7-6-1-6-6-7-6-4 win for McDonald. So you know Brandon, who... Earned his first victory of the year, three sets over Altmaier in round one here in Acapulco. Nakashima quietly, by the way, a top 15 server amongst top 50 players over the last 52 weeks. Yeah, Brandon's got that one circled on the calendar. Again, Mo versus Tommy Paul. Tommy a 97, Mo a 98. They played a million times in the juniors. They've also played five times in their career. Mo won all four matches at the challenger level. Tommy the one time won the one time they played at the ATP level 2019 in Atlanta. Match is going to be physical. Michael Moe, I said at the start of the year, I expect I would be shocked if he if he was healthy. He was going to end the season in the top 100. Lo and behold, Michael Moe, 25 years old, currently sitting at a new career high, number 80 right now. Yeah, felt pretty good about that take. It's been a career. Uh, it's been a, the best start to Michael Moe's career, and he continues to earn victories in what should be an advantageous, slow outdoor hard court conditions uh, here in Acapulco. And to start the season, I mean, again, 
Then you have Fritz Shapovalov. Shapovalov, five and two in that career head to head. Boy, is he desperate for a win. You look for Shapo, who had lost three straight coming into Acapulco, gets a three set win over Kesmenovich. You look for Taylor Fritz coming off of his title in Delray. He's now a top five player in the world. You know, again, uh, obviously two and five in the career head to head against Shapovalov. And you look the last time they played Vienna last year, Shapo got Fritz in three sets. Fritz got him a couple weeks earlier in Tokyo in three sets. You know, it's competitive. Three of the matches they've played have gone three sets. When they played at the U.S. Open, it went five sets. Yeah, four of their seven matches have gone the distance. Shapovalov has weapons to make Fritz uncomfortable. Fritz has weapons to overwhelm that Shapovalov backhand. And, you know, again, to force Shapovalov to have to play defensively, which is obviously what he doesn't want to do. And then the winner of that's going to play Francis Tiafo. If Tiafo loses to Feliciano Lopez, even though he's 0-1 in the career head-to-head, I'll be shocked. But yeah, Fritz Shapo, winner plays Tiafo. And then the winner of that gets the winner of the Mackie, Nakashima, Tommy Paul, Michael Moe Quartet. Sign me up. Sign me up for Acapulco. And, you know, again, then on the bottom half of the draw, a lot of intrigue. You've got Berrettini looking to scalp out some sort of two out of three hard court success. It's crazy that he's as close to 500 as he is for a career record in those sorts of two out of three set hard court matches. He's taken on the big hitting Elias Emer, who is looking to make, you know, again, one of, I think he's made fewer than five quarterfinals at the tour level in his career. I bet this would be his first at a 500 level event. His serve, his forehand, they're going to give that Berrettini uh, backhand some troubles, but Berrettini 2-0 in the career head to head. You'd expect him to advance. Borges versus Runa, Two players who have been on the Cracked Interviews podcast. Obviously, Nuno, the most underrated player, in my opinion, of 2010's college tennis. His serve, his forehand, their weapons. The question is, can he sustain himself physically against Runa? Borges won a a challenger last week in Monterey. Got a good first-round win over Nick Chappell. But again, how much gas is left in the tank for Borges? Can he hang with Runa for two out of three sets? That's the question. And then again, bottom half of the draw, Demon Hour looked dominant in a first-round win. I want to see him make a run to the final. I need to see him not only beat Jacopo Berrettini, but beat a Casper Root in the quarterfinals, beat a Holger Runa in the semifinals, beat whatever American or Chapo comes out of the top half as well. This is an opportunity for Demon Hour to earn three significant top 20 victories and you look for demon 48 and 25 in his last 52 weeks eight and 12 actually against the top 20 that's way better than i expected it to be and yet again you look for demon over his last 52 weeks he's made the quarterfinals at seven different events none of them at the 1000 level none of them at the slams that's probably the big note for demon in his last 52 weeks and i know this is just a 500 but Go beat three more top 20 players at this event. And again, show me you can be a top 20, top 15, no lower than tier two guy on hard courts moving forward. Again, we're going to talk about Demon at length with David Kane this week, uh, but I'm fascinated by Demon in this year. He's one of my make or break guys, as I've alluded to in the past. And again, he looked really good. The depth he was generating off of both wings, forehand, but more particularly the backhand wing. How well he was generating depth on the backhand, how well he was absorbing the depth in round one on the forehand wing. 
he has my attention this week. Go beat someone big. We'll talk about him more. Uh, but again, those are your matchups. And right now, it's actually Runa, 20.3% favorite to win the title. Fritz is at 17%. Demon, 13.2. Berrettini, 12.1. Rude, all the way down further, 9.7. He's below Tiafo and Tommy Paul right now. Tennis Abstract selling their stock on Casper Rude this week in Acapulco. But that's your update on the 500-level event there. And I know some people were ripping on the draw. I get it. It is a 500-level event. But boy, it's an American bull. And this is what we've been dreaming about at Crack Rackets for five years. So yeah, I'm excited for that event in Acapulco. Of course, I'm excited for the end of the South American clay court swing in Chile as well. You got a big win from uh, Christian Guerin in round number one over the wild card. Dominic team two and six. Do we want to have the team conversation right now? I mean, not really. Like, I still want to give him the benefit of the doubt. It's just the movement. It's just not there. And when he doesn't have time, it's just that much more difficult for him to get into those big ground strokes and explode through the ball the way he was doing from 27 to 2020. Green took time away. Green attacked. Again, it was a tough South American clay court stretch for Dominic Team. You were really hoping a place where he established himself back in the day that he could come down here this month, put together a good stretch of matches, and yet for Team, you know, he goes, what, one in three overall. Got a win over Molchan, but losses to Juan Pablo Varias, Diego Montiero, and Christian Garin. You know, you look for Dominic Team now to start the year, one and seven overall. I mean, again, he's earned the benefit of the doubt. Obviously, patience is a virtue as he's continuing to work his way back into health. But yeah, I'm not ready to have the conversation yet. It'll make me too sad. Um, but it was a tough loss for him against Garin. Everything else going pretty much to script. Nicolas Iari, his serve, his forehand. He is a top 75 right guy right now, top 50 on clay. He's going to beat someone during the two-month European clay court stretch, and it's not going to shock any of us. Munar, the big win over Musetti. Tough month for Musetti, but God, I would not wish playing Jamie Munar on my worst enemy. Uh, again, like, oh, it's all the names you'd expect, all the matchups we'd uh, want looking moving forward. Echeverry, Sarundalo, Sarundalo versus Lajevic, Baez versus Garin, uh, you know, Schwartzman versus Yari, Chechenato, Montiero. They're grinding down in uh, Santiago, and we will talk about that event more as the week progresses. I'll move it closer to the start of the lineup, so I'll spend more time perhaps offering my take since I know we spent less time talking about that South American clay court swing than some of the other events we've seen. But folks, that's your update. That's who's playing well right now as we approach month number three of this 2023 uh, professional tennis season. Of course, again, it's not just the Pro Tour rocking and rolling right now. You've got tons of college tennis action. We're going to be covering so much of it here at Crack Rackets. Thursdays, Fridays, Sundays, we've got the SEC, ACC over on ESPN+. Plus. We've got Sunday Big Ten cross-court cast on our Crack Rackets YouTube channel. Deciding points on our YouTube channel. Tuesday and Wednesday nights, 9 p.m. Eastern time, where we recap all the action for any of you intrigued on what's going on in the college tennis world. Of course, a shout-out, as always, to our super producer, Daniel Westhoff, who has a of an any job to do day in, day out, making all of this content possible. Again, we'll keep rocking and rolling all week long, even with those broadcasts. I assure you we're going to have mini breaks each and every day because 
We've got five tour-level events on the calendar. Plenty of tennis to keep up with, and we know it's our job here at Crack Rackets to ensure all of you tennis fans remain the most well-informed, best-educated tennis fans in the business. Of course, a shout-out to our friends at Tennis Point who allow us to provide these podcasts day in, day out. Remember to go to tennis-point.com for all of your latest and greatest tennis needs. Use our promo code CR15 to let them know we sent you there as well. With all of that said, for our fantastic super producer, Danny Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break. And we'll talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.